Revolt Black News, presented by State Farm. This week in Revolt Black News, we spotlight the humanization of blackness in America. Now we do that not because we want to, but because we have to. From the fatal shooting of a 20-year-old young man not too far from the exact spot that George Floyd was murdered, to a harmless veteran and patriot who proudly served his country only to come home and be tased for being black. So y'all, it's time to talk about the one thing, the only thing that seems to really move this racist ass country, and that is the money. Because see, there's bags out there, and the bread, it's actually being stacked quite high, and it's all being done in the name of our pain and our alleged humanity. But the question that many in the culture are asking is this, where and how exactly is all that money going to humanize blackness and make black lives actually matter? See, Black Lives Matter is now a mainstream thought and a commercial slogan, right? So now it's time to have the very uncomfortable but necessary conversation, all in hopes of gaining some comfortable solution. We want to know, how are all those dollars going over? Because all too many black lives are innocently, tragically, and frequently going under. Welcome to Revolt Black News. I'm your host, Ebony K. Williams. Now here's the thing, y'all. The culture is doing a lot of talk about where is the money that is being raised off of the backs of black tragedies that are occurring at the hands of law enforcement. Listen, we got to break it down here at Revolt Black News because we know that so many of our loved ones, see, they deserve restitution and the culture deserves solutions. And yet here we are time and time again, seeing the same damn thing over and over black folks getting killed by law enforcement and nothing being done about it. So here to help me get to the bottom of this is Eric Garner's daughter, Miss Emerald Snipes Garner, also with us, friend of the show and host of Straight Shot No Chaser over on the Black Effect iHeartMedia podcast, Miss Teslin Figaro. Welcome both you queens to the show. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. Emerald, I want to start with you, dear. Um, again, first and foremost, I won't even pretend to understand the imaginable pain um, that you are feeling and that you are still feeling some seven years after the loss of your father to police brutality. And we all saw the video. It was truly horrific. And then I must imagine, Emerald, every time you see another black life taken by law enforcement on video, it must do something to bring that heartbreak back up again. Now, in terms of the money that is being raised um, in order for us to see some progress about Black Lives Matter, you yourself, you're doing a lot of work. I'm putting a lot of energy behind trying to get the Eric Garner law passed. And that law would actually put a federal ban on chokeholds by cops. Very important piece of legislation. Tell us uh, if you get the money that you're seeking, how that money works, Emerald, to make sure that the legislative efforts are put in place. Connect the dots for us. You know, when it comes to uh, my situation, um, I feel like my father's murder was, you know, that's, that's, that's the most tragic thing that I felt, you know, throughout my whole life. And as a direct result of that, I lost my sister. So I think that we need to start where the mental health issues are concerned. Um, you know, uh, as far as people, you know, saying that the funding, where's the funding going? Um, my strategy is to put, allocate the funding towards mental health services. Us as survivors, us as victims of police brutality, we need mental health services. So that's, that's the beginning of where we should start to allocate those funds because, you know, once our loved ones are killed, we are put directly in front of a camera. 
we're put directly in front of a reporter. We are put in front of a journalist who wants to talk about our story, but we're not put in front of a therapist who will help us work through our issues. And a part of those issues um, not being worked worked on, um, you know, those those become our everyday um, struggles. Where does the money go, Emerald, in your experience? And where would you like to maybe see a better job of that money distribution around mental health services? Meaning if someone, uh, tragically, we'll use the example of Brother Wright's family, who is right now in this moment dealing with his loss. If they picked up the phone and contacted an organization that does this work, where would they be directed to from your experience? And if there's no place, how do we change that? In my, my, in my direct experience, I have received services through Medicaid, through, you know, through um, when I was in college, through, through BMCC, um, I was able to get, to you know, be, um, you know, connected with a, with a therapist almost two years later. So there isn't a place. So I created the We Can't Breathe um, nonprofit organization. Um, you can you can visit WeCan'tBreathe.net to get some more information about it. But this is an organization that has just started. We just received our 501c3 status. And my first initiative is to hire a mental health therapist who can be, um, you know, virtually available, if not physically available, for someone who is in the situation of Dwayne Wright's family right now. Like, I don't feel like it's too late for myself. I don't feel like it's too late for other victims who have suffered police brutality. But I think that there's a way that we can fund a therapist to be on site, not just, you know, partner or just ask someone to donate time. Right now, we need someone specifically assigned to deal with this type of trauma, this type of issue. Why is the pot that's already collected not being distributed in real time right now? And listen, I want to be really clear. Tess, this is not about calling out anybody. You know, I certainly believe that everybody should be able to live uh, a comfortable lifestyle based off of the work that we do. And this is important work as well. But I don't understand why young Miss Emerald is over here talking about people going to her website to make donations for basic needs to support trauma victims when there's a hundred million plus dollars already supposedly for that kind of work. Teslin, please explain it to me. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to understand it too. You know, one thing about having a, a nonprofit is you have uh, accountability to the public. Uh, you are response you you should be responsible enough to answer the questions on where the money is going when folks say well you know i don't really have to do that well you kind of do because a nonprofit is a public entity whether that is a small nonprofit that emerald is starting or a major nonprofit like black lives matter global either or it is a public entity and if that is that's the reason why you do not have to pay taxes that is the reason why you get the breaks and so if you are not managing that appropriately and being transparent according to how the IRS has set it up. The public can demand, you know, that nonprofits be dismantled based upon uh, how uh, things are managed. If you accept anything from the public right. uh, to fund your organization, you have a responsibility of transparency. The bag is there. The question is, who's managing that's, the bag? That's what I'm what? saying, Teslin. Right. The bag is right. there. Who, we all see the bag, right? Right, and who yeah. you're giving it to. A final question to wrap this up, ladies, because we know we could be here all day about it. Tesla, I want to ask you this. Uh, if someone came to you, and I personally think you would be a good person for them to come to, and say, we have X amount of millions of dollars, we would like to distribute it and allocate it in a way that is most impactful for the community, what would be uh, some of your action items? 
I would first recommend that we reinvest back into the families who are most affected, see who really wants to run these foundations, give them the hired expertise, attorneys, consultants, publicists, all of the things that they need to be successful, hold the family just as accountable for how they manage those funds would be the first thing. And then the second thing would be, again, starting these uh, group think tanks or whatever it is we want to call it to employ lobbyists, to employ, uh, you, you know, le uh, to legal students so that they can write journals, so that they can write uh, essays, so they can publish their work, to talk about how, you know, how do we hit this on every level from our educational institutions, as well as, uh, you know, from our government, local and state. And then the third thing, uh, would certainly be giving those resources that goes back to impact the family as a whole. Because if the argument is just, I want to get resources to uh, help uh, 50 families, the, the argument is going to get stopped because it's only 50 families. Although they deserve it and need it, if we're going to say we need mental health resources for this will be my strategy not only for the victims of police brutality but we need 10 million dollars for the victim of anybody that's been shot or paralyzed or killed because it allows us to have a broader argument to get more money to get invested and that doesn't mean because we know what can happen with that the money doesn't go to the victims that it's intended to it ends up going in other places so i i get that too but i'm saying when we're talking about the type of money that we need and to get the public to engage in what our ask should be, we have to make sure that it is impacting a more than one Pacific family. Tesla, you know how I feel about you and the work that you do here at Revolt Black News. We always appreciate and welcome your thoughts. Ms. Emerald, um, our hearts and, and minds go out to you and everything you've endured, and we appreciate the work that you continue to do. All right, y'all, now next up we have this week's headlines. We've got more Revolt Black News after this. Welcome back to Revolt Black News. These are today's headlines. We start with the tragic death of 20-year-old Dante Wright. Brooklyn Center Police Officer Kimberly Potter, who claims she thought she was using her taser gun and then fatally shot Wright, has been arrested and is now being charged with second-degree manslaughter. Wright's parents recently spoke out detailing the final moments on the phone with their son before the police tragically took his life. Let's watch. The police officers came back up to the window and asked Dante to step out of the car and Dante said, for what am I in trouble? And the officer said, we're going to explain that when you step out of the car. So and they asked him to put the phone down and I heard the phone getting put down pretty hard, whether it was on the floor, I don't know where he put the phone down. Mm -hmm. um, and then I heard scuffling and a, the girl that was with him screaming. And I heard an officer ask for them to hang up the phone, and then I didn't hear anything else. And the other story of police brutality making its rounds this week is the footage of a black and Latino Army lieutenant, Karan Nazario. He's being pepper sprayed and held at gunpoint by Virginia police at a traffic stop. Now, one of the two officers involved has since been fired, and now Lieutenant Nazario has filed a $1 million lawsuit claiming that the officers violated his First and Fourth Amendment rights. Let's listen to his attorney speak on the incident. Once again, you're facing Joe Gutierrez already having threatened to kill you. Um, I think he was displayed, displayed admirable calm. And so what I would 
require and expect from, you know, the uh, United States Army officer to be able to remain that calm, knowing that one wrong move and you're going to die. And now over to what is the third week of the trial of Derek Chauvin. George Floyd's brother, Philanese Floyd, gave an emotional testimony earlier this week. Let's watch. He was one of those people in the community that when they had church outside, people would attend church just because he was there. Nobody would go out there until they seen him. And he just was like a, a person that everybody loved around the community. He, he just knew how to make people feel better. This week also marked the point in which the prosecution rested its case, giving way for the defense to start theirs. Barry Broad, a police instructor and so-called expert in the use of force testified. Let's hear what he had to say. And can you just briefly overview your opinions in this particular case? I felt that Derek Chauvin was justified, was acting with objective reasonableness following Minneapolis Police Department policy and current standards of law enforcement and his interactions with Mr. Floyd. Okay. So as you're reviewing an incident such as this, you have to try to see it through the eyes of the officers on the scene. You know, what factors were they dealing with? What circumstances? What was the suspect doing? What were onlookers doing? Were there environmental hazards? and then try to put yourself in the officer's shoes to see what they, the decisions they made, were they objectively reasonable or not. Also, David Fowler, a forensic expert, testified saying this, that George Floyd died of sudden cardiac arrest due to heart disease. Let's watch. In my opinion, Mr. Floyd had a sudden cardiac arrhythmia or cardiac arrhythmia due to his atherosclerotic and hypertensive heart disease, or you can write that down multiple different ways. Um, during his restraint and subdued by the police or restrained by the police. So listen, I want you guys to pay attention to one very important part as we continue to hear witness after witness in the case of Derek Chauvin. The most important part in my legal opinion is this, that this jury ultimately agrees on the actual cause of death of brother George Floyd. Now, as we've already heard and we'll continue to hear, there's going to be a lot of disagreement around the cause of death. Was he killed around drug intake? Was it cardiac arrest? Uh, was it asphyxiation or some other term to signify that he was killed because he couldn't breathe? Pay attention to the cause of death. As usual, here at Revolt Black News, we're going to stay all over the case. Now over to vaccine news. Out of an abundance of caution, both the CDC and the FDA have both recommended the pause of the Johnson & Johnson COVID-19 vaccine. The recommendation to pause comes as six different cases of blood clots have been reported in women between the ages of 18 and 48, and one of those women has reportedly died. Now listen, I am a proud, fully vaccinated person. I was vaccinated through the Moderma vaccine. We've had countless and countless physicians on this show and throughout the culture and community say that if you can get a vaccine, you should get one, any brand, it doesn't matter. But again, we have to follow the facts. And as these six women have been reportedly linked to very severe blood clots, we do want to just again reiterate that both the FDA and CDC have recommended the pausing of Johnson & Johnson for now. Listen, y'all, we do want to make this crystal clear point. 
These six rare cases of blood clots are six out of about 6.9 million people so far who have received the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. That is less than 1%. So again, we are reporting the facts. We want to give you context, and it is vital that we keep the proper perspective here as the reporting continues. And in international news, South Africa is pausing their rollout of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine after learning the news of the U.S.'s recommendation to halt further doses. South African Health Minister Zuile Mkinze, he said this of the situation. The preliminary literature on hand, our scientists are confident that the FDA decision is only on a precautionary basis, and we expect that this will not result in the complete withdrawal of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine from the vaccination armament. And lastly, in sports news, NBA All-Star and two-time MVP Steph Curry has become the highest scoring Golden State Warrior in franchise history. Yes, even surpassing Wilt Chamberlain, who held the record for over 50 years. Wow, we congratulate the 33-year-old Curry, who still has many years ahead of him if he continues on this scoring trajectory he's on. Statisticians forecast that he could retire with over 27,000 career points. Congrats, Steph. All right, that's it for this week's headlines. Up next, retired LAPD Sergeant Cheryl Dorsey joins me in a discussion about black cops and whether or not they deserve empathy for policing our communities. It's gonna be deep, y'all, so stick around. We've got a lot more Revolt Black News right after this. Welcome back to Revolt Black News. Now we have talked a lot this episode about police reform and potentially destruction and rebuilding. And what our folks on the ground want to know is what they need to do to make change. But now we're going to bring in a retired police officer to help us get some more perspective and information about these issues. In fact, she's a retired LAPD sergeant. Welcome to the show, Sergeant Cheryl Dorsey. Thank you. So wonderful to see you, Sarge. Now, just the other day you tweeted this. You said of uh, Dante Wright that it was murder, not a mistake. You went on to say that the officer seemed to remember part of her training that required taser announcement, but cannot differentiate between duty weapon and taser. The point you make, Sergeant Sherrill, is clear and convincing. Do you think that your fellow law enforcement officers uh, tend to see it as clearly as you do? And do you think that's why she ended up resigning? And now it's being reported that she will face second degree manslaughter charges. Well, certainly, you know, those uh, in law enforcement who look like me understand. And listen, just police in general, you know, it's, it's something to be on that department and know the culture and know the lingo. And so let me just tell you what I know after having spent 20 years in a uniform myself, which is, you know, police officers. And listen, I'm preaching to the choir. We've seen them create an audio record that's contrary to what's really going on. We've seen officers say, uh, quit, quit fighting me, quit quit resisting when there's no resistance going on. And so this is a this is a veteran tenured officer, 26 years in uniform. And she understands that training requires when you do use a taser, which is located on her weak side, so that means she's right-hand dominant, she has to reach across her body to get it, which is an awkward movement compared to just reaching straight down for your duty weapon on your strong side. And we know when you, deploy a taser, you say, taser, 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 so that other officers can get out of the way and not be subjected to um, being charged as well. And so she knew all of that to do, but somehow 
she messed up and she grabbed her duty weapon. We know our weapons intimately. We deal with them constantly. We have to be familiar with them because our life depends on it. You know, we train so much on the Los Angeles Police Department with our weapon holstering, unholstering, uh, being able to do it when you're not looking, loading, unloading. And so all of these things are second nature. You don't make that kind of mistake. And for her to just decide at the 26th hour or the 11th hour to uh, resign, understand resign means she retired. She's got enough time and grade to just go ahead and retire, draw her service pension, which I know causes a lot of angst for, for folks, and then wait and see what happens if she's charged criminally. Let me ask you this about the community and black cops. Um, I'm always appreciative of having conversations like this where I can speak to black law enforcement, or in your case, former law enforcement, very directly. Uh, there are some people in our community that have empathy and, and, and concern for our black law enforcement officers. And then there's those in the community, Sergeant Cheryl, I ain't got to tell you, that just see uh, law enforcement um, that, that are black as well as the opposition. Um, from your experience, what's the morale like for black law enforcement officers in general right now in this moment? Do you see law enforcement um, that is black uh, rallying together to, to have an experience that can increase the relationship of trust between black law enforcement and the community? I think it varies from department to department. Listen, there's 18,000 police departments across the United States. And a court, a, 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 um, understanding that the, the degree to which they have black officers uh, at least in LAPD, I can only speak to for sure, it seems to be shrinking. I mean, there are fewer and fewer. I think we make up 9% of the Los Angeles Police Department. And so within that, you know, we really don't have a place to go. Every department has some form of a Black Police Officers Association. Some are more uh, stronger and more active, uh, more proactive with their members than others. But for the most part, you know, you have to be built a certain way to do this job. It really is not for everybody. And you can't come on any police department thinking you're gonna make friends internally or externally. And so for me, you know, it was never difficult because when I joined the LAPD, I joined knowing I'm a black woman first. I'm a mother of four sons. And I had decided that when I joined this department, I joined because I needed a good paying job, but I also knew that I was gonna treat everyone I encountered the same way I would want you to treat my own children should you ever encounter them. And a lot of it, really, Ebony, it's just common sense, right? And if sense were common, everybody would have it. But I think it's so important for Black folks, given all the obstacles that they put in our way to get on these departments, you need to get on it. You need to be there. Change will come from the outside, but certainly you can have, an in, uh, you can have influence internally. Wouldn't it have been nice if there was someone who was like me uh, standing outside of a Tatiana Jefferson's bedroom window when Aaron Dean decided to fire a, a round in there, or someone uh, seated, uh, uh, someone present when uh, Derek Chauvin was seated on Mr. Floyd's neck to pull him off and say, that's enough, get off, what are you doing? If we're not there, we can't have that kind of influence and input. And so it's so important. There's so many things. There's not one thing that's gonna fix this. It's institutional, it's systemic, and it's been going on for a long, long time. And it's also, Ebony, top down because we have police chiefs and we have sheriffs who uh, condone this craziness. There was a sheriff uh, who was giving out gift cards to his officers when they would mistreat black folks. We have here in Los Angeles on the LA County Sheriff's Department, we have 17 internal gangs regulators, executioners, jump out boys who uh, get tattoos like gangsters do when they mistreat or kill somebody. And the sheriff, Alex Villanueva, is aware of it. And so how do you deal with that? 
Rotten from the inside, like you said, uh, Sergeant Cheryl. You know, and I think what you're making is an important point, though, right? Like me personally, I've always felt it was important for us as a black community to always at least create the space um, for that kind of internal change uh, to come from spaces that we know have been historically corrupt against our people. That includes law enforcement. That includes prosecutor offices, right? Uh, we have to make space for black folks to ascend into those ranks and be bombastic change agents from the inside. Uh, but, you know, there's a counter argument as well. Uh, nobody put it better, in my opinion, than James Baldwin, uh, who, who wrote this. He said that he feared black cops more than white cops because the black cops had to work so much harder on your head to prove to himself and his colleagues that he was not like all the others. Um, I know you've heard variations of that sentiment throughout your career, Sergeant Cheryl. I know you have. Uh, what is your reaction? To that, yeah, that, and, that and you know, and I, I think there's some validity to that, but it's not just unique to law enforcement. Listen, you know, black folks in general, we're always afraid to do what white folks <laughs> don't have a problem doing. You know, we don't want to help each other, whether it's in law enforcement or whether you work at a hospital, you know, because we're afraid that if we are, uh, you know, too helpful to someone who looks like us, it's going to be a problem. And I've certainly experienced that on the LAPD. I talk about the racism and what I refer to as reverse racism, black folks not wanting to help me when I thought, you know, that's where I should go to to get the most help. But it's certainly, um, certainly there's some validity to that. But also, like I said, I'm sure there are certainly many like-minded folks out there who are taking courses that have to do with criminal justice right now who are um, would be well suited and well placed on some of these departments. And, you know, like I said, when you come on, if you come on knowing and understanding uh, what you're going up against. So when it happens to you, see, I wasn't looking for friends. I wasn't looking for anybody to be nice to me, Ebony. You know, I had partners. I'd get in the car with them and for eight hours, they wouldn't even speak to me. <laughs> and my position was, okay, works for me. Don't talk to me. I don't talk to you. But but what I wasn't going to allow them to do was mistreat anybody who looked like me. And eventually I developed a reputation. It wasn't a good one in their mind, but what they didn't do in front of me was commit police misconduct because they didn't know if they could trust me and they couldn't. As we wrap up this segment, you know, here at Revolt Black News, we like to stay in the space of solution. Sergeant Cheryl, are there any other big takeaways that you think create the path forward for policing in, uh, in America and in black communities at this moment? There's much for us to do. I say get involved and get engaged. When you have an opportunity to attend a community meeting and have your voice heard, go speak to the police chiefs, meet with the mayors, meet with legislators. Uh, if you don't know of an organization in your community, start one. Get involved, get engaged, uh, get on juries is so important. I know that there are obstacles and stumbling blocks that they put in our way, but but we have got to, because if you don't show up, then it's an easy fix, right? So we need to get on these juries. We need to vote. We need to vote for people who are like-minded. If you don't like your district attorney, then start looking for people in the community that you can help put up. Uh, if you don't like your mayor, uh, replace them. Politicians understand one thing, and that's votes. And so I say the onus is on us as a, as a community to not sit around and wait for other folks to fix it for us. Get involved and get engaged. Sergeant Cheryl, that's why we appreciate you here. We appreciate your willingness to have frank, honest, accountable conversation about the issue because only talking and doing things about it are going to create that change that we all seek. Uh, listen, y'all, we're going to take a quick break, and then Zuri Hall and Dustin Ross are going to celebrate all things Black excellence and entertainment. We've got more Revolt Black News after this.
What's going on, you guys? It's Dustin Ross here, and I'm back on Revolt Black News, hosting this week's Black Excellence and Entertainment segment. Now, joining me in the celebration tonight is someone very, very special. You all know her from Access Hollywood. Welcome to the show, Zuri Hall. How you doing, Zuri? Hi, I'm doing really well, thank you. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Wonderful, wonderful to have you. And let's go ahead and hop all the way into this Black Excellence, shall we? Uh, first up, we have tennis superstar Serena Williams. Now, she is taking her superstardom to TV as she's inked a first-look TV deal with Amazon Studios. Now, Williams will be working with the streamer to create unscripted and scripted content, and the two already have a docuseries in the works. Now, what do we think of this mega move from the mega star Serena? Zuri, what are your thoughts? Yeah, well, it's definitely a huge move, right? We would expect no less from someone like Serena Williams. Uh, she is a 23-time Grand Slam tennis champion. She is a wife and a mother. Um, she's just a strong Black woman, period, and has done so much when it comes to representation, particularly in the, the space of sports. And people are fascinated with good reason. So we know her and love her on the court, and now she's opening up a little bit more of her world to us personally, which is fascinating. This will serve be the deepest dive we've seen yet and I'm really excited about it. It's gonna be a good one. Next up we have HBO's In Treatment, right? Now they just dropped their first trailer for season four featuring a new face and a new therapist, Uzo Aduba. Now this will be Aduba's first television appearance since she starred in Netflix's hit show Orange is the New Black. In Treatment concluded its series run in 2010 but has announced a 24 episode season set to premiere in May. Are we excited about this? How do you feel Zuri? I'm very excited about this. I love a good reboot. I also can't stand a reboot sometimes because so many <laughs> times they get it wrong. <laughs> but yes. what I will say about this one is, if you're gonna get it right, the first thing to get it right is casting Uzo in the leading role. She is such a talented actress. Um, she's so kind and just gracious, so you just wanna see her win. It feels good when she wins. Yeah. And we've missed her on our TV screens, right? Like you said, uh, the original version of In Treatment focused on a 50-something-year-old psychotherapist and his, his sessions with his patients, and now Uzo will take over uh, that role where she will be playing Dr. Brooke Lawrence. So I'm really excited to see how she puts her spin on it. The original was Emmy Award winning. It was Golden Globe winning, critically acclaimed, and I would expect no less for this reboot. So this is going to be a good one. Listen, if you want the, the role portrayed correctly, get Uzo on the dial. She could play me, she could play you, because she could play anybody. So I'm, I'm really excited for her to get her hands on this new role and this new incarnation of Entreatment. Uh, next up, we have 17-year-old transgender actress Yasmin Finney, who is set to star in Billy Porter's feature film directorial debut of What If? Now, the film follows two high schoolers, a bashful teenage boy and an unflappable trans girl as they navigate a senior year relationship. This sounds so good. Are we here for the yeah. film, Zuri? Oh my God, I am so, so, so here for this. First of all, I'm here for anything Billy Porter wants to serve up to us, and he is constantly serving. Um, more importantly, uh, I love art and I love activism, and Billy Porter does a really good job of having those two worlds collide, right? That intersection of existing where your art is your activism often. And these are stories that need to be told. And for trans youth, for trans youth of color especially, to be shared not just with people who see themselves, 
but others who may not see themselves and yet still should be learning about these stories and learning about how to have more compassion and empathy and understanding um, for our brothers and sisters, whoever they may be. So I'm really excited about it. I love everything Billy does. And I'm really excited for Yasmin too. You know, she's young. This could potentially be her breakout role. Um, and she's a teenager, so she's got a, a bright future ahead of her. And I'm excited to see her, her star shine brighter. I couldn't agree more. Uh, and speaking of, of, of great talent, right, which seems to be a recurring theme this week in our headlines, ABC has announced the cast for their limited series, Women of the Movement, rounding out actors like Adrian Warren, Cedric Joe, Glenn Turman, and many more. Now, the six-episode series produced by Jay-Z, Aaron Kaplan, and Will Smith is inspired by the book Emmett Till, The Murder That Shocked the World and Propelled the Civil Rights Movement. How are we feeling about this, Zuri? This is major news. It is major news. It's it's heavy. It's heartbreaking. It is a painful story and one that is so important um, that we don't forget. And when I say we, I mean the collective. Our history is American history, period. And, um, yes. you know, the, the aftermath of the, the terrible, terrible crimes committed against Emmett Till um, are something that we as a nation must never forget. And I am particularly um, looking forward to Cedric Joe stepping into this role of Emmett Till uh, because they had a nationwide search to make sure they got the right young man for this role. Yes. Um, and obviously the story follows the aftermath of Emmett's murder as his mother uh, fought for justice, sought justice for her son, and she was up against the institution, you know, an institution that was very much designed to keep not just her suppressed, but justice for Black people suppressed. And so um, it's a difficult story to tell, but if anyone can tell it, it's this team, knowing that Jay-Z is backing this and his commitment to telling stories that empower our people um, and celebrate our communities is really awesome. And it's going to be a very painful exploration of the Jim Crow South, but it's an important exploration. And um, I'm really looking forward to seeing how they pull this one off. One name yeah. is all I needed to hear, Glenn Turman, you know, a legendary, <laughs> iconic actor. Um, coming off of a, 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 an incredible turn in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom on Netflix. So mm. I'm excited, excited, excited about this. Uh, lastly, Zuri, Showtime is stacking up their cast for their anthology series, The First Lady. And the series is set to star Emmy nominee Regina Taylor as Michelle Obama's mother. Season one is set to focus on Eleanor Roosevelt, Betty Ford, and Michelle Obama. So how are we feeling about Michelle from the South Side etching herself Ooh. in a historic piece of television like this, right? <laughs> I mean, I love it. For, period. She's already etched herself in the history. I get so excited thinking about this. My forever first lady, all hell, okay? Um, I can't wait. I just can't wait for this story. I'm such a history nerd anyway, as you can tell. I get so excited talking about <laughs> historical stuff. And um, yeah. we are witnessing history being made um, when it comes to Michelle and Barack Obama. And it's an amazing thing to be a part of. I'm really excited to see a retelling of her story. Um, I'm also fascinated because Viola Davis is stepping into Mrs. Obama's shoes. And those are big shoes to fill. And, you know, I, I interview actors and actresses and celebrities for a living. And one thing that they always admit to getting nervous or anxious about is when they're stepping into the shoes of someone who is still very much alive and able yes. to judge their performance, right? Um, if anyone can do it, it is Viola Davis. She is one of the greatest actors of our time. Um, but I am really excited to see how she, she breathes life
life into the character of our, our first lady, our former first lady, Michelle Obama. Zuri, I agree. Uh, and unfortunately, that brings us to the end of our segment. Zuri, this was so, so much fun. Thank you so much for joining me in this week's Black Excellence in Entertainment. We definitely must do it again. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for having me. All right, we're taking a quick break, and then Rochelle Ritchie interviews Mary to Medicine's Dr. Contessa Metcalf about the mental toll of Black pain. A very important conversation. Stick around. More Revolt Black News after this. Revolt Black News. I'm Rochelle Ritchie, and we're about to have a very important conversation on mental health and the overall toll our people are enduring in terms of Black pain, Black trauma. From the COVID-19 pandemic to police brutality, the layers of trauma are exponential. And we need to unpack exactly how to protect our minds during these times. So joining me in this very important conversation is Mary to Medicine's Dr. Contessa Metcalf. Can you define uh, Black trauma for us so our audience can have an understanding of what exactly we're talking about? For any Black person who is raised in America or even who's migrated to America, you always feel like a visitor in your own home. So things happen where our lives don't matter, right? We're less of a person. You go all the way back to slavery. And then today, to kind of watch the news and to know that at any moment, not just in you know one city and then in another city way across the country, in the same city, the same infraction can happen again. Mm -hmm. We live in this constant state of uncertainty. And at any moment, anything can happen. And no matter what you do, education, you still are privy to being killed or, you know, canceled for any reason whatsoever. That's essentially the psyche that we live in. Sometimes it appears that these, uh, that mainstream media is constantly replaying this over and over again. Tell us how that can also impact um, Black people and how we can sort of protect ourselves mentally uh, from seeing these images repeated on the mainstream news. I think it's a paradoxical effect. For some people, they become desensitized. And that desensitization is really a problem because you don't really, again, you don't humanize the fact that there is a life that we're seeing that's got snuffed out right in front of us. But for Black people, it just really reinforces, again, that it doesn't matter what you accomplish in your life. Because of your skin color, you just don't matter. Now, what as we go into this conversation, we talk about trauma, when we talk about pain, one of the things we have to obviously address is therapy. Those people that uh, are unable to afford uh, therapy, uh, you know, what are some of the ways that they can do, you know, have some sort of uh, mental health exercises uh, that doesn't hurt their pocket? One of the wonderful things about Obamacare is that it actually became something that was included. I know um, I was in the military, and so I was eligible for TRICARE, and so there was no copay. But then because I I'm a veteran, I can also go to the VA. And so that is something to mention because a lot of people who have served the country, even if it was briefly, you are eligible for care at the VA, the National Health Line, 1-800-662-HELP, um, the Disaster Distress Helpline, there is findtreatment.gov. And those are some of the resources that are available, SAMHSA, S-A-M-S-H-A.gov, going to your county health department. If you can't or you don't feel comfortable engaging the healthcare system, some of the things that you can do is just go outside, 
right? Take a walk. Make sure you're connecting yeah. with people. Um, not I, Isolation is a killer. There is a stigma in the black community about keeping stuff in your home. And I always believe that that is the source of toxicity. Transparency is freedom. And if you are in a network of sister, you know, sister girls, because I know I have a lot of good girlfriends that I can reach out to. If you have cousins, friends, neighbors that you really, you know, I, I believe in also that um, that family that you've inherited. You don't have to always have to have a blood relationship with someone for them to be connected to you. Use those connections and open your mouth and say what you are feeling, because if you don't do it, it won't help. I'm always down for a good walk. I, I feel like there is healing uh, when you walk outside and you're in a green space. That is my that is my therapy if I can't go and actually see my therapist and also yoga. And if you just just five minutes of mindfulness, literally just focusing on your breathing, you know, focusing on nature, looking at a tree and just literally keeping your eye focused on that tree, breathing in and out, it, you'll be surprised mm -hmm. what that does for your mood. What exactly is generational trauma? And how can we address uh, the traumas of our ancestors that we don't even realize that we're actually dealing with today? We were bought, bought to this country, you know, without, we didn't want, we didn't want to come here. And so then after being here as slaves, we then became indentured servants. And then Jim Crow then went to mass incarceration. You know, very small infractions can lead to black people being incarcerated for not just, you know, days and years, but decades. But then if you are not only getting that in society, but in your home, if you're not breaking generational curses in your home, you know, this imposter syndrome, dealing with those things, this kind of lack or belief of inferiority. And so that all kind of just creates this whole psyche of, of trauma that we learn to live with. And it's not that we're tougher. It's not that we can handle pain more frequently. Mm -hmm. it's, ha it's that we have to endure pain. You gotta just figure out a way to get the therapy that you need to improve. We're also experiencing the trauma of the COVID-19 pandemic, which as you know, has killed and infected uh, African-Americans, Black Americans, uh, more than any other demographic in the country. And so it seems like we're getting this double dose. When you're dealing with grief and you're dealing with death personally, um, and you're seeing so many people impacted by it, um, you know, what, what is the solution to that? Let's talk about people of color who may not have access to all of the health insurance, the, you know, the physicians, the, you know, that vaccine, whatever it is that those things that kind of level the playing field for everybody, we're not having access. And then also throw in their isolation. If we don't find out some way to level the playing field, then we are going to, 10 years from now, still be suffering the effects of the pandemic of 2020. And I'm super afraid of the long lasting effects of COVID. So it's not just only about people dying. It's about getting the infection and not being able to fully recover and get back to that 100% level of being able to take care of your family and work full time. And that's, you know, for me, that's my biggest fear. I don't, I don't know how much I can stress, you know, really looking online for different resources that are available. Um, the Disaster Distress Helpline, 1-800-985. 5990 is another one, you know, go to the cdc.gov. And that actually is a really fantastic link because you can type in get help and it will, you know, throw up a vast amount of resources despite, you know, whether your, your issues are mental health related or if it's something else. And you can also, you can put your zip code in and there's a locator for resources near you. Online help telemedicine has really exploded and accessing telemedicine, if that's something that's available to you right now, because you live in a rural area, do that as well.
well. Thank you so much for taking the time to share uh, this very, very important information. So I appreciate you taking the time uh, to join us here on Revolt Black News. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. And to everyone at home, be sure to catch more of Dr. Metcalf on Married to Medicine airs on Bravo, Sunday nights, 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. Ebony, it's back over to you. All right, Rochelle, Dr. Contessa, thank you both so much for vocalizing the impact and the importance of Black pain as we all collectively try to absorb and process the trauma of our people. All right, y'all, now that brings us to resources. So important. With everything happening, y'all, our mental health right now, it's fragile and it's vulnerable. So do me a favor, check out the National Alliance on Mental Illnesses website. If you click on the Your Journey tab, you'll find a page devoted entirely to our community. There's a bunch of reading there, and they'll even direct you to a place where they call culturally competent care. So important, y'all. It's really clutch. Check it out. Also, the Anxiety and Depression Association of America's website. They've got a lot of resources there, too. Check it out. And if you go under their Find Help page, and of course, you can select the Black community under their drop-down demographics. Listen, what we're going through right now as a people is not easy to say the least. But what we do hope is that after today's discussions, conversations, and resources that we're trying to make available, that the pain and the problems that affect our people become just a little bit easier. For Revolt Black News, I'm Ebony K. Williams. See you next time.